Oh yeah, cat. Words of wisdom. Drop that zero and get with the hero. <laughs> Welcome back to This Is Comp, a sub-series of Discord and Rhyme where we talk about compilations, box sets, and homegrown playlists, artist by artist, song by song. You can get early access to these episodes by signing up for a monthly donation at patreon.com slash discordpod. My name is Rich Bennell, pronounced with an umpty, and I'm here with... <laughs> Mike DeFabio. And Phil Maddox. All right, so it is time to continue on to tracks 8 through 14 of Weird Al's 1992 Polka Medley, Polka Your Eyes Out. And to start things off, are you guys ready for some metal? I think it's finally time for some metal. Hell yeah! Generally okay <laughs> with some metal. It depends on what yeah, the metal we have, is. Well, we have a lot of metal of various quality over the course <laughs> of this episode, but we start on a high note with Enter Sandman by Metallica. Sandman was released in July 1991 and reached number 16 on the Hot 100. Number one that week was Emotions by Mariah Carey. Time for Metal Mike in the Morning. <laughs> Metallica formed in Los Angeles in 1981 in response to an ad placed by drummer Lars Ulrich in The Recycler seeking like-minded fans of new wave of British heavy metal bands like Diamond Head and the Tigers of Pantang. The first to join was rhythm guitarist and vocalist James Hetfield, followed by lead guitarist Dave Mustaine and bassist Ron McGovney. McGovney, who reportedly did not contribute much to the band, was soon replaced by more interesting bassist Cliff Burton, Whereupon Metallica relocated to the San Francisco Bay Area. Yay area. <laughs> right before recording their debut album, which was then called Metal Up Your Ass in With a cover of like a spike sticking out of a toilet. Real classy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right before they recorded that, uh, Dave Mustaine was also fired from the band due to his various addictions and violent tendencies not his guitar parts though those got to stay his replacement kirk hammett of exodus joined the very same day mustaine of course went on to form megadeth and i don't think he held too much of a grudge or anything I'm 
nah, you know the story. They released a string of albums that helped define the new, harder, faster style of heavy metal that came to be known as thrash. Cliff Burton died in a tragic bus accident. He was replaced by Jason Newstead, whom the band welcomed by completely mixing him out of their next album. They lost a Grammy. <laughs> they lost a Grammy to Jethro Tull. Yada yada yada. Eventually, they made the greatest album of all time, Sane Anger. <laughs> Okay, fine. In 1991, after three albums of increasingly long and complicated songs, they decided that they just wanted to rock out for a change and recorded their self-titled Black Album, which promptly made them huge rock and roll mega sensations and has since gone hexadecupole platinum. <laughs> me? I like the album okay. It made me think I hated Metallica when I first heard it as a teenager because it mostly sounded like a lot of undifferentiated mid-tempo chunka chunka hey And I still like their earlier albums a lot more, but I've always really liked Enter Sandman. It's not a big old prog epic like Master of Puppets or One, but it's still a mighty fine heavy metal song with a riff that, as far as I know, is an entirely original sequence of notes. It's really easy to make fun of Metallica and fun too, but they were really smart songwriters in their heyday. I mean, there's a very good reason that Metallica became the thrash band that even your grandmother has heard of and not, you know, anthrax. <laughs> but Phil, you love Metallica, right? I do. And the black album was actually a very important album to me because when I was growing up, you know, I listened to a lot of classic rock stuff and the Black Album was kind of the album that broke me into listening to like more modern rock in the early 90s. That said, I find it interesting how much backlash there was when Metallica released Load and Reload in the mid 90s, because say what you will about the quality of those albums, they're a lot weirder than the Black Album. Which is why it was so weird, like, oh, load and reload. Those are sellouts. Whereas it's like the Black Album is like the selloutiest album that ever was. Which I don't even mean as an insult, because like, basically every song on it rules. I think Mark Prindle described them as sounding like really angry ACDC on this album. <laughs> and that is a very good description of what this album sounds like. There's nothing too creative. Mm -hmm. There's nothing too interesting. But it's like every song just like beats you in the head with fantastic riffs. And James Hetfield has never sounded better. As for Enter Sandman itself, I mean, it's a great song. I don't have too much more to say about it because, I mean, it's Enter Sandman. Everybody with a pulse has heard it. But yeah, it's an it's just interesting. It's always been interesting to me that this album gets a pass from the metal purists, but somehow Load doesn't. Uh, and, and as for Enter Sandman and its place like in this medley, well, so it, it makes me think of like how like the off the deep end, like Weird Al album came like around the time of like Nirvana and Nevermind and Smells Like Teen Spirit. Like he parodied it as as like smells like Nirvana and like you always think of like Nevermind as like the album that like came along and changed everything. But like the black album like came out, I think like a month before it. 
<laughs> and like Pearl Jam's 10 was already out and like Allison Chains' facelift. Like, I, I don't know. I, I guess like you think of like Nevermind as like the album that changed everything. But they, it was really like an entire wave of like albums that in retrospect were just like part of an entire scene that was changing. Right. I mean, I would argue that the three albums that changed everything, it's not just Nevermind. It was Nevermind. It was the Black Album and it was the Chronic. Yeah. And more on that in just a second, actually. This is the Humpty Dance by the Digital Underground. The Humpty Dance is your chance to do the hump. Do me, baby. Do the Humpty Hump. Do the Humpty Hump. Stop what you're doing, cause I'm about to ruin the image and the style that you're used to. I look funny, but yo, I'm making money, see? So yo, world, I hope you're ready for me. Now gather round. I'm the new fool in town, and my sound's laid down by the underground. I'm drinking all the Hennessy you got on your shelf, so just let me introduce myself. My name is Humpty, pronounced with the Humpty. Yo, ladies, oh, how I like to funk thee. And all the rappers in the top ten, please allow me to bump thee. I'm stepping tall, y'all, and just like Humpty Dumpty, you're gonna fall when the stereos pump me I like to rhyme, I like my beats funky I'm spunky, I like my oatmeal lumpy I'm sick with this, straight gangster Mac But sometimes I get ridiculous I'll eat up all your crackers and your licorice Oh, yo, fat girl, come here, are you ticklish? Yeah, I called you fat, look at me, I'm skinny It never stopped me from getting busy, I'm a freak I like the girls with the boom I once got busy in a Burger King bathroom I'm crazy Allow me to amaze thee They say I'm ugly but it just don't faze me I'm still getting in the girls' pants And I even got my own dance I like this song a stupid amount <laughs> <laughs> The Humpty Dance was released in January 1990 And reached number 11 on the Hot 100 And number 1 that week was Vogue by Madonna it was actually a pretty great week for female representation in the top 10 in general. We also had Hold On by Wilson Phillips, All Right by Janet Jackson, It Must Have Been Love by Roxette, and unfortunately, All I Want to Do is Make Love to You, the worst song Hart ever recorded. <laughs> so the Digital Underground formed in 1987 in Oakland, California, East Woo! Bay. We're doing a lot of California representing on this uh, on this episode, Mike. Yeah. And they are one of the earliest commercially successful examples of West Coast hip hop. So they were originally a duo of MCs Chopmaster J and Shock G, who raps on the Humpty Dance under his alias Humpty Hump. But the underground was always more of a loose collective than a consistent group with a stable lineup, with members freely coming and going depending on who was around at the time. Sound familiar? The Digital Underground patterned themselves on Parliament Funkadelic, who we talked about back in early 2019 in our episodes on Funkadelic's Maggot Brain and Parliament's Mothership Connection, which you two respectively hosted, actually. Yeah. So the Digital Underground's 1989 debut single, Do What You Like, is a classic example of this. It features nine vocalists, and that's only a rough count because some of them might just be alter egos of the others. I wasn't able to confirm this. And the song liberally takes elements from a number of P-Funk songs, including Agony of Defeat, All Your Goodies Are Gone, and most of all, Flashlight. And though we're usually on the serious tip, check it out. Tonight we're gonna flip and trip and let it all hang out tonight. We're gonna say what we like. Cause yo yo, we wanna know how many people in the flow Will I just let yourselves go and do what you like? Yeah, what's the night tonight? Just eat food. 
<laughs> One thing I love about Do What You Like is that they fade it out at the end of the song for the single mix and then fade it back in for the block party. <laughs> yeah, it comes from Sex Packets, which is a really great album. Killer album. Highly recommended. So the main hook on the Humpty Dance comes from Parliament's 1980 song, Let's Play House. And the beat is a combination of the drums from Parliament's 1979 song, Theme from the Black Hole. Or how else can you capture a boogie if you don't attack from the back to the rear march? My name is the one some people And Sly and the Family Stones sing a simple song. So the Humpty Dance has kind of gone down in history as a novelty hit. And part of this is that Humpty Hump is a comic character. Like, Shakchi took on the persona of, like, a hip-hop borscht-built comedian of sorts. He wears, like, funny hats and Groucho Marx glasses and nose. But their use of P-Funk samples laid the groundwork for the G-Funk movement and albums like Dr. Dre's The Chronic and Snoop Dogg's Doggy Style, which put West Coast hip-hop on the map at a time when the genre was dominated by acts from New York. And they even launched the career of Tupac Shakur, who appears on their single Same Song, from the soundtrack to Dan Aykroyd's movie Nothing But Trouble, of all places. So your mileage on the Humpty Dance may vary depending on how many times you've heard drunk people try to rap along to it at parties, but the Digital Underground was a truly paradigm-shifting group for hip-hop at large. So what do you guys think? So perhaps my take on this is going to be a little bit different because the number of times I have heard the Humpty Dance in the wild is zero. Oh, wow. Huh. I, I listened to a hip hop station that, that played out of Detroit for about like three or four years and they played it pretty regularly. So I think I might be like uh, a little biased on that front. But yeah, I heard it originally from the Weird Al polka and then I got sex packets based on a review from Wilson and Alroy's record reviews. And just immediately loved it because it's real. It's really good. Like, the Humpty Dance. It's a novelty song. Sure. But there's serious skill behind it. It's funny, but it's not just funny, if that makes sense. Like these guys clearly take what they're doing seriously. And the Humpty Dance is just superb. I just in particular, I have to call out that bass line, just the. <laughs> like, that's fantastic. It's there are so no catchy. notes. If it's a novelty song, it might be my favorite novelty song of all time. But I would probably I would elevate it above being a novelty song just because despite being as funny as it is, it's just so well put together. Yeah. And I guess I should clarify that sex packets doesn't refer to condoms, but it refers to like a pill that comes in a condom like package. You take it and it gives you like a complete satisfying sexual experience. And it's meant to be like distributed to astronauts and people like that. Huh. I guess. And that's the concept for the album. Maybe this is this is me being an old person, but I kind of miss when like there were albums like that 
There's nothing like sex packets anymore. It is delightful. It is. I mean, honestly, like I would listen to it like 10 times before listening to The Chronic again, even if The Chronic is the more like musically revolutionary album. Oh, for sure. That's see, I have never heard sex packets and I'm going to have to now because you both. Oh, yeah, I think you'd like it. Mike. Very much. I, it's I think very I much would. your thing. What do you think of the Humpty I, Dance though, Mike? Oh, I, I've always really liked the Humpty Dance. I mean, it's I mean, if you don't like the Humpty Dance, you're you're some kind of, you know, stuck up backpacker or something like, <laughs> needs hip hop to be all serious all the time. I I love fun, goofy hip hop. I wish there were more of it now. Uh, it, you know, it was so I, common back in the old days. Like, yeah, you used like, to have, I have the Smithsonian anthology of hip hop, which is like an 11 disc like history of hip hop, which is very good. And you can really kind of tell at what point, like a lot of the humor and hip hop kind of goes away. Yeah. Used to have used to have all these like hip hop songs about food, which I mean, MF Doom brought that back briefly. But, you know, you used to have like organized confusion. Did who stole my last piece of chicken? And there were <laughs> great, great song. Yeah, Ham and eggs by a tribe called Quest. And, uh, you know, that's you don't hear those anymore. So, you know, the, the Humpty Dance fits right in with just like goofy, fun hip hop. That isn't, you know, I, I don't think of it as a novelty song at all. I just think humor is a, a part of part of the hip hop genre as much as anything else. Um, well, I guess it's not necessarily a novelty song per se, but like, I don't know. I didn't hear sex packets until a couple right. of years ago. And like, based on like this song, as much as I liked it, I was not expecting it to be attached to like this frankly revolutionary album. Well, I guess it's like, I think a lot of people just tend to as like associate comedy in music with novelty yeah. But yeah. as Frank Zappa once asked on the title of one of his <laughs> less good live albums, does humor belong in music? I would say certainly yes. And uh, just it's uh, just a few little uh, anecdotes uh, about uh, about the Humpty Dance. One is uh, I've heard that uh, when this song came out, it was a bad time to work at Burger King. <laughs> And uh, always checking the bathroom for always, unruly behavior. Yeah, I guess I guess people tried to do that a lot. Um, and this was before TikTok too. People <laughs> just did it for the sheer experience. They weren't uh, broadcasting it or anything. Nobody had their phones, just vibes. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is uh, Shock G. I I wish I had recorded this. You know, I wish I had thought to. But when I was, I went to. I went to San Francisco State to, and studied recording there. In one of the uh, recording classes I took, there was a huge library of tapes by people who had recorded there, and that's what we would practice mixing on. And there was there was all kinds of stuff, but one of the one of the projects that had recorded there was a a duo. I think I think it was just two people. It was called Superhero Hairdo, and it consisted. <laughs> Consisted of Shock G and one of the guitarists from Third Eye Blind. Wow, that is quite a duo. <laughs> yeah, I don't know which guitarist. I know that they've had they've had several, but I, I it's don't. okay. I believe you. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it was just it was Shock G rapping, and then this other the, the Third Eye Blind guy on just like guitar loops and things. And I, I wish I had a clip for you, but I I can't find any information about them online. Okay, well, shall we move on to the next song? Let's. 
Let's. All right. It is a much worse song. I <laughs> regret to inform you. This is Warrant with Cherry Pie. She's my cherry pie. Put a smile on your face. Ten miles wide. Looks so good. Make a grown man cry. Sweet cherry pie. Yeah, yeah. Good dissolve. <laughs> Thanks. Or as John Candy would say, nice Cherry Pie was released in September 1990 and reached number 10 on the Hot 100. Number one that week was Ice Ice Baby by Vanilla Ice and more on that very soon. I don't nec- I don't know how the charts work sometimes because it was number 10 on the Hot 100 and number 19 on U.S. mainstream rock. Yeah, well, this was a point when like the charts were starting to splinter with like various alternative charts. Uh, and like things that like weren't even registering because like there wasn't like a physical single. But uh, I mean, this is if you go listen to Chris Melanthi's hit parade podcast, if you want all of the ins and outs of that sort of thing, it's really informative in that regard. All right. So Warrant formed in 1984 in Los Angeles, California, the unofficial home of 80s glam metal. There were a bunch of members. Oh, I'm just going to skip that. You don't care. so the band gigged around for about three years before beginning to attract major label attention because they were popular at the club scene at the time most memorably this led to the band recording a demo for paisley park records yeah prince's record label like they wanted to sign warrant uh that that didn't go anywhere So they eventually did get a record label deal and their debut Dirty, Rotten, Filthy, Stinking Rich came out in 1989 and it had a handful of hits, most notably the truly awful power ballad Heaven, which made it all the way to number two on the Billboard Hot 100. But the band would become most well-known for their next album, 1990's Cherry Pie. According to the band, the album was ready to go when they got a call from Columbia Records saying, well, we don't hear a single here. The A&R man said we don't hear a single, as Tom Petty would say. (laughs) And they told them, cook something up. And lead singer Johnny Lane, I don't know, J-A-N-I, I don't know how that's pronounced. Like, but apparently he cranked out Cherry Pie in 15 minutes 
and one of the most infamous hair metal singles of all time was born. Yep. So I'm going to level with you here. I try to be positive on Discord and Rhyme more often than not, but <sighs> this 80s glam hair metal stuff, like, I just don't like it. Like, this is a transparent ripoff of a combination of Def Leppard's Pour Some Sugar On Me and Aerosmith's Love In An Elevator. And I don't like either of those songs. Nothing against you if you do like it, because I know a lot of people who do, but just this whole, like, super loud drums, like, yelling guys, like, weird shredding guitar solos thing just doesn't do anything for me. And I'm into metal, but and I've tried to get into this stuff. I've halfway managed to like bands like White Lion, but uh, Warrant just defeats me. Like, I listened to a couple of their albums in preparation for this episode and just uh, Cherry Pie. No, is I didn't even do that. Cherry Pie is probably their best song that I heard. And I don't like Cherry Pie at all. So what does that say? Mike, are you a secret Warrant aficionado? No. Uh, <laughs> and very much like Phil, you know, I, I see Discord and Rhyme uh, as as a a force for positivity in the world. Uh, and I, I try not to be, uh, you know, even if I don't like something all that much, I try to be diplomatic about it at least, but, oh, this song sucks. It's just, I don't like it at all. I almost can't criticize it because there's nothing there. It's just a, a big empty ball of air. It's, and sure, it was only written in 15 minutes, but so was Paranoid. So was Evil Woman. <laughs> yeah, that's that's no excuse. Lots of great songs. John Prine wrote Souvenirs in his car on the way to a gig. <laughs> and that's a, one of the best songs of all time. So, yeah, I don't really have much that you guys haven't already said. The song is basically just like a palette swap of pour some sugar on me. And it's like. I, I don't want to say they like turn the subtext into text because that song is already <laughs> all text. So I, I guess it's more like they underline the text and like change the font to comic Sans or something like that. I will say that apparently before they recorded this and the record label changed it, uh, the title of this album, because this was the title track of their second album, they were going to call their second album Uncle Tom's Cabin. What? Well, and that is a track on that album as well. Yeah. Right? And uh, probably for the best, it's like Cherry Pie is not like a great album title, but I don't like the idea of Warrant making an album called Uncle Tom's Cabin. And this song is also pretty infamous for its video, which has Bobby Brown as like a waitress and just, you know, generally a, a sex symbol overall. She's uh, she's I have to say that she's a sport with all the stuff that she they have her do. Right. In, in case the metaphor is lost on you, like she drops a slice of cherry pie like in between her legs and there's a close up of it. Yeah. A lot of the imagery in the video is them like trying to lampshade the sexism. And I, I guess there's that. But I can't say that I recommend watching it. It's it's a real thin line, like in like in Spinal Tap. There's a thin line between <laughs> clever and stupid. Like, I kind of get that they're making fun of it, but it also 
is that kind of sexist video at the same time. So I'm not quite sure what to believe. I watched the documentary, The Decline of Western Civilization, Part 2, The Metal Years, a couple of months back. And that video is basically that documentary, like, compacted into three minutes right there. (laughs) Why did every hair metal band feel the need to wear leather vests with no shirts? I I will never understand (laughs) this. Okay, well, let's get on to a really good song. Yeah, much better. Comparatively better. Much, much much better better song. song. Yeah, this is Janet Jackson with Miss You Much. I miss you much. Oh, I miss you much. I really miss you much. I miss you much. Oh, I miss you much. I really miss you much. Much was released in August 1989 and topped the Hot 100, the first of four singles from Janet Jackson's album Rhythm Nation 1814 to manage this feat. And I'm glad that Weird Al decided to double dip on Janet Jackson because back when we talked about her on the show, I was torn between the albums Control and Rhythm Nation. And I ultimately decided on Control because it had just a more interesting backstory and just an overall more revolutionary impact on the music world. But Nonetheless, Rhythm Nation is one of those like combinations of massive commercial success and towering artistic achievement that only comes along like every once in a while. It is a true rarity. Like listening to this album is a real head rush. The hits just don't stop on that thing. You've got Escapade. You've got Black Cat. You've got Love Will Never Do, open parentheses, without you, close parentheses. You've got the title track. The only demerits that I'll give Rhythm Nation are that first off, conceptually, the album is kind of a clumsy attempt at social commentary, and that reaches its low point in the track Living in a World They Didn't Make, which reenacts a 1989 school shooting in Stockton, California. But even then, I admire Janet's specificity compared with the completely like empty and broad platitudes of Michael Jackson songs like Heal the World and Earth Song. Yeah, this is way that's way better. Yeah, definitely. And as for Miss You Much specifically, I enjoy it just fine, but 
Honestly, it's my least favorite single on the album. It's always felt strangely like monotone to me, almost more of like an exclamation point than a song. And musically, it doesn't really do anything that the song Rhythm Nation doesn't really do better. But that that is not at all to say that it's bad. I would never skip it. And if you don't own the album, you have to get on that stat. It is just as essential as Control is. I, I mean, I guess longtime listeners to this show would might remember when I was talking about control, like I had never really listened to Janet Jackson before we were talking about, oh, let's do this album for the podcast. Hey, Phil, sign up for him. I'm like, oh, OK, I'll dig into Janet Jackson. And I discovered that I really love Janet Jackson. And as good as control is, I think Rhythm Nation 1814 is probably her best album. Again, maybe I'm listening to the wrong radio stations, but I really feel like, again, I hate to even bring it up. But I feel like the Super Bowl incident just did so much to erase Janet Jackson. Oh, no, it's absolutely true. It was like documented fact. Because like, again, I bought this album after we recorded our episode on Control and I absolutely loved it. The only song on it I knew was Miss You Much. And it's like there were tons of huge hits off this album, but just I didn't hear them. There was a point like in the 90s when I pretty regularly heard like Janet Jackson songs on VH1. Like I remember hearing like If and Together Again and um, and Doesn't Really Matter. Just a, a lot of her like late 90s hits. And again, I guess at the time I was I guess the term that people would use is rockest. I really didn't pay attention to a lot of R&B stuff. And then I got into more like, you know, R&B and hip hop stuff later. And by that point, Janet Jackson was persona non grata and I just never heard her stuff. Yeah, no, she got screwed. Which is just crazy because this whole album is fantastic. Like, so I would agree with you that Miss You Much is a little bit more monochrome than the rest of this album. I feel like that's kind of the point, though. I kind of love how just directly it beats you in the face with its rhythm. Well, one thing I didn't say about the song is that like in terms of sequencing on the album, the album opens with like a suite of like really socially conscious stuff and Miss You Much starts at a point when, you know, uh, she directs you to start dancing. But uh, it's just it's a fantastic record. It's a fantastic song. Um, By Control and 1814 Rhythm Nation and janet and the velvet rope like today yeah they're outstanding because they're all just superb records mike what about you and miss you much i really like miss you much it's i agree that there's not as much happening musically as there is on a lot of our other songs but i think of of the various modes that janet jackson operates in uh, my favorite of them might be industrial janet Right. Well, I think I said in like the, the control episode, like the best Janet Jackson is when she sounds like Meat Beat Manifesto. <laughs> right. Yeah. Ministry. She, she kind of does here. Yeah. Yeah. Like early Meat Beat Manifesto when they were still kind of, yeah, th- sounded like they were throwing metal at the wall. Uh, and this Miss You Much even opens with this sort of creepy Nine Inch Nails style drone underneath the rhythm there's Uh, so much like industrial influence on this album mm -hmm. yeah 
It's it was surprising to to find yeah, out. Yeah, it's like one part New Jack uh, Swing, one part industrial, and just a wild record. Buy it today, please. <laughs> That's Rhythm Nation. Janet Jackson albums usually there's usually a point where they they kind of lose me. Rhythm Nation has like there are, there are parts I'm I'm not into, but it's like it's I think it's easily her her, her uh, finest work. I I will never particularly love Janet Jackson ballads because I think she's a lot better at you know bangers than ballads. But even the ballads yeah. on this album are pretty good. They're, yeah, I I don't mind them. It's 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 just that that school shooting reenactment. I just I don't yeah. must must you have a, a a chorus of children singing back up, and then must you have them get shot dead? Um, but no, I I I, I second all the recommendations for for Rhythm Nation anyway. Well, let's lighten the mood with. <laughs> This is the Divinals with I Touch Myself. Hey! I don't want anybody else. When I think about you, I touch myself. Oh, I don't want anybody else. Oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, no, no. Touch Myself was released in November 1990 as the first single from the Divinal self-titled 1991 studio album. It reached number four on the Hot 100 underneath High Fives, I Like the Way, open parentheses, The Kissing Game, close parentheses, a song I have never heard of. Number two that week was Kathy Dennis with Touch Me, open parentheses, all night long, close parentheses, another song I have never heard of. big week for songs with parentheticals that I've never heard of. 1990 and 1991 in general are also just a good year for weird one-off bands that nobody's ever heard of. And then you look, it's like, oh, they were at number one. How'd that happen? Yeah, and I'm sure some like slightly <laughs> older listeners of the show are like, you haven't heard of that Kathy Dennis song? What are you talking about, you youngins? Anyway, so the Divinals are technically just Divinals. We're an Australian duo consisting of guitarist Mark McKinty and singer Chrissy Amphlett. Amphlet had a distinctive visual image, usually dressing in a school uniform and fishnet stockings on stage, and a powerful, unusual voice. She sounds to me like what would happen if, like, Kate Bush, like, ditched the studio wizardry and, like, the introversion and decided to just become a rock star. And you can particularly hear this on their 1985 single Pleasure and Pain, which was co-written with 80s arena rock muse Holly Knight.
yeah, the Divinals albums I listen to are pretty good. I don't know. It's like one of those things where like uh, I, I always like feel the urge to rate albums when I listen to them. But in this case, like I'd, whether or not like I think it's like a good album or a great album, I could totally imagine their albums being like, you know, something I would have like shouted along to in high school if I'd gotten them at the time. I feel like the Divinals are one of those bands like they could have been bigger. But they came out at just the absolute worst possible time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mentioned this in the previous episode, but one thing that makes Poke Your Eyes Out one of like Weird Al's most interesting medleys to me is that it like features like a bunch of styles of chart music that just like instantly became completely unpalatable once like, well, not just when Nevermind came out, but when the entire like wave of music represented by Nevermind came out. Like, I, I know it's like simplistic to draw like lines between eras like that, but like stuff like I Touch Myself just wasn't on the charts anymore. Like a year later, there's no other way to explain it. All right. It's it was it was one of those just absolute sea change years in music. Yeah, because again, not just in the rock side, because again, the chronic was going to come out soon and just absolutely wipe away all of like the emergent new jack swing sound yeah definitely i guess that is something to like reiterate is that it wasn't just never mind like music was changing like on multiple fronts in the early 90s uh and like poke your eyes out is like an interesting cross-section of a lot of styles that just weren't cool anymore and by by the time the album came out actually Anyway, Amphlet and McKinty wrote most of the Divinals catalog together as a duo. But for I Touch Myself, they teamed up with outside songwriters Tom Kelly and Billy Steinberg, who also wrote Like a Virgin by Madonna, True Colors by Cyndi Lauper, So Emotional by Whitney Houston, and I'll Stand By You by The Pretenders, which that's like quite a resume right there. I would be really proud if I wrote those four songs. Yeah. So this song is an unambiguous ode to self-love, in case you didn't notice. And this caused like a minor controversy, but like actually not as much as you might think, because despite the subject matter, it nonetheless, it nonetheless manages to feel very, very like lighthearted and wholesome. And the lyrics treat, treat like, you know, being a master of your domain, shall we say, as part of a healthy functional relationship. Like the very first line after all is I love myself. I want you to love me. I, I almost wonder if the message was lost on the more prudish of people. Cause I remember as a kid, like seeing, this like scroll up on like those time life compilations <laughs> that would air like during like episodes of the price is right. And it's like, how do you not know what this is about? I'm nine and I know what this is. I about. was what, like seven <laughs> when this came out. I definitely remember this being like a song people snickered over in the schoolyard, but I, I don't remember there being like a whole like hoopla over it. No, I don't. I don't remember people talking about this song at all. I, I didn't know it existed until quite a bit later. I, I really think that's just the times. Yeah. Because this whole thing just got swept away. Well, what do you guys think of the song? As a song, I mean, it's fine. I don't have a lot to say about it. I think a lot of its notoriety is just because of what the lyrics are. I think it's almost more interesting just to talk about it in the context of what if, because... This feels like a promising debut from an interesting band. Well, this is their fourth album. Right. Well, I mean, like, yeah, I, I guess like debut, it's the debut like on for the, a lot of people. Yeah, I guess like debut on the charts. Much like Fleetwood Mac's like self-titled album was for all intents and purposes, their debut. <laughs> like. But I feel like they probably had legs and could have gotten somewhere if it weren't for the fact that music changed so irreversibly 
in like the months after this came out that like it instantly rendered them irrelevant and they couldn't catch up. Mike, what about you? Uh, I I think it's fine. You know, it's once you once you get over the subject matter, it's you know, it's a it's a perfectly pleasant, lighthearted little song. My favorite thing about it is that's uh, that's Ben Montench playing keyboards. Oh, right. Yeah, it is. Did not know yeah, that. Him the other thing I have to say about it is when you hear the Weird Al polka version, it's it's funny because I just imagine him just sort of poking his own face when he sings the title. <laughs> Stop touching yourself. <laughs> Similar to when he covered Closer by Nine Inch Nails later. Uh, well, to be continued for that one. I mean, we're going to we're going we're gonna to do the alternative. <laughs> yeah. polka, aren't we? We have to. I we have. To. I certainly hope so, because I love the alternative polka. Anyway, one more thing is that the Divinal story has a sad ending. The band recorded only one more album, 1996's Underworld, before Chrissy Amphlett eventually passed away of breast cancer and multiple sclerosis in 2013. Oh. Yeah. And her dying wish was apparently that I Touch Myself serve as a reminder for women to perform annual breast examinations. And actually, the I Touch Myself project launched in 2014 to spread awareness about the importance of early detection. So... The song is serving a good purpose. Wow. I mean, that's sad, but I mean, that's cool also. Yeah, no, that's a good use of the title, but very sad that we lost her. Yeah. Okay, well, let's move on to the penultimate song in this set. This is Mutley Crew with Dr. <laughs> Feelgood. He's the one they call Dr. Feelgood. He's the one that makes you feel all right. He's the one they call Dr. Feelgood. He's gonna be your Frankenstein. Dr. Feelgood was released in August 1989 and peaked at number six on the Hot 100 under Miss You Much by Janet Jackson at number one. Also in the top 10 that week, Sowing the Seeds of Love by Tears for Fears, Love in an Elevator by Aerosmith, and Bust a Move by Young MC. Take all of those over Dr. Feelgood. Absolutely. (laughs) All right. Mertley Crew also formed in Los Angeles in 1981. And consisted of Nikki Six on bass, Tommy Lee on drums, Mick Mars on guitar, and Vince Neil on vocals. Nikki Six originally envisioned the band as a cross between David Bowie, the Sex Pistols, and Black Sabbath. Wow, they didn't make that. <laughs> <laughs> nice no, try, guys. Uh, their first album, "Too Fast for Love," is I actually actually some pretty solid, straightforward heavy metal. But their second shout at the devil was bigger, dumber, and stompier. It was a massive hit, and it got them to open for Ozzy. I listened to that uh, one earlier today. The time it was they... not that bad. It has a cover of Helter Skelter on it. It's perfectly fine, is how I would describe almost every Motley Crue album. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but by the time they made Theater of Pain in 1985, they were full-on big, poofy hair metal. By this point, 
Mertley crew were known as much for their antics as they were for their music. And in late 1987, Nikki Six actually died for two minutes from a heroin overdose before being revived by a paramedic who just so happened to be a Motley Crue fan. So he's the one they call Sir John Gielgud was recorded in 1989. <laughs> that's, that's so funny. We were I was just watching uh, Murder on the Orient Express, the 1974 one with Sir John Gielgud, <laughs> and my wife said the exact same thing. He's the one they call Sir John Gielgud. <laughs> wow. Nice. Wow, you guys have the same brain. Great minds. Well, that album was recorded in 1989 after the whole band had gone through rehab and their sobriety paid off because the album got all the way to the top of the Billboard 200 and it's widely considered their best. Uh, for those keeping score at home, this is the second song in this episode produced by Bob Rock, performed by a heavy metal band whose name starts with an M that formed in L.A. in 1981 with a bass player who died. Me, it's all right. Glam metal was never my bag. So glam metal is like the looks, like academic name for hair metal, right? I think so. Pretty yeah. much. I mean, advertising I could argue, looks and chops but... a must. No big hair. <laughs> but I, I guess this is as good as that sort of thing gets. I, I think it's interesting. I was actually we were talking about this earlier. It, there was sort of a micro genre around this time of these hard rock songs with these quasi wrapped verses, like pour some sugar, pour some sugar on me is another one. And I, I'm pretty sure uh, the run DMC walk this way remake was what set that whole trend. Yeah. Well, off. it strikes me as like yeah. very much like trying to like capture the vibe of seventies Aerosmith for the eighties, but much like glossier and stupider. Yeah, very much. Yeah. And I, I just, you know, between this and Warrant, I, I kind of feel like I could write a hit hair metal single just sitting here. Yeah, I didn't listen to the Warrant album, but I listened to all of the Dr. Feelgood album. And it's the it's this. This is a pretty good description of the entire thing. I mean, this <laughs> kicks the shit out of Warrant. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But yeah. that doesn't necessarily mean that I like it. So this is this is another instance where I honestly like the Weird Al Polka version better. Like it, when I see the title Dr. Feelgood, that's what plays in my head. Well, the hair metal songs in this set are funny to me because like originally I hadn't heard the originals before hearing this medley. And like when you had like lyrics like she's my cherry pie and like he's the one they call Dr. Feelgood. I thought that, that these songs would be like bouncy bubblegum pop or something like Tiffany <laughs> sing, or, or someone like that singing like Mr. Sandman bring me a treat style stuff. I didn't know that it was hair metal like I hadn't enc encountered hair metal yet. When I was when I was 13. Well, I guess the thing with hair metal is that its general goal was to combine that kind of bubblegum with like a grittier, like heavy metal style. But in my opinion, when you combine bubblegum pop with metal, you kind of forego what's good about both of those genres. Yeah, it looks like metal, but it's yeah. just like sugary pop music for teenagers, essentially. Because it's it's like I love Celtic Frost. And I love the Archies, but I do not need Motley Crue. You are my candy <laughs> Stupid piece of crap. All right, guys. When a girl has a heart of stone, there's only one way to melt it. Just add ice. 
<laughs> this is Vanilla Ice with Ice Ice Baby. Let's kick it! If you got a problem, Yo. I'll solve it. Check out the beat while the DJ revolves it. Ice Ice Baby! Ice Ice Baby! Word to your mother! Ice Ice Baby! Ice Ice Baby forever! Vanilla Ice gets the ear booker honor. Yo, VIP. Let's kick it. VIP, that's the Vanilla Ice Posse. <laughs> ice, ice, baby. All right, stop. Collaborate and listen. listen. Ice is back with my brand new invention. Something grabs a hold of me tightly. Flow like a harpoon daily and nightly. Will it ever stop? Yo, I don't know. Turn off the lights and I'll glow. Extreme, I rock a mic like a vandal Light up a stage and wax a chump like a candle Dance! Crush a speaker that booms I'm killing your brain like a poisonous mushroom Deadly! When I play a dope melody Anything less than the best is a felony Love it or leave it, you better gain weight You better hit bulls out a kid don't play If there was a problem, yo, I'll solve it Check out the hook while my DJ revolves it Ice Ice Baby was released in August 1990, and it topped the Hot 100. Phil, take it away. All right. Vanilla Ice was born Rob Van Winkle on Halloween Day 1967. He never actually knew his birth father and just took the name of his stepfather and had a pretty troubled adolescence, spending a lot of time like splitting between Dallas and Miami. And while he was doing that, he legitimately got like really into both hip hop and breakdancing. Again, the the nature of his name, why he was Vanilla Ice. He was vanilla because he was part of a breakdancing crew and he was the only white guy and they called him Vanilla and it stuck. And I guess people like call Vanilla Ice a poser and we'll get into that more later but he was legitimately really into hip hop and he eventually, you know, started performing and became a local sensation around Dallas and he signed a record contract. He uh, eventually recorded an album and released a single with a weird rejiggering of play that funky music by Wild Cherry on the A side and Ice Ice Baby on the B side. And a DJ eventually just decided, you know, let's play the B-side instead, and the B-side was much more popular than the A-side, and Vanilla Ice Mania was born. He got signed to SBK Records, which is a subsidiary of a major label, and they reissued his debut album, which was at the time called Hooked. He uh, recorded a few new songs, and they changed the track listing around, and they put it out, and, you know, Vanilla Ice was born. So as to what I think of Vanilla Ice and Ice Ice Baby, that is a very fraught question. So I don't just want to be a contrarian because Vanilla Ice is the softest target you can make fun of. Like, quick, name somebody who's easier to make fun of in music than Vanilla Ice. He's Kanye West. Hire <laughs> 
but he was always a poser and all kinds of stuff. But it's a little bit more complicated than that because Vanilla Ice really had a fraught upbringing and he wasn't like some random dude brought in to represent hip hop. He was legitimately into it. And his music did, in fact, introduce a lot of people to hip hop that wouldn't have been into it otherwise. That said, it's not like his record is particularly good. I have to the extreme, you know, the album that Ice Ice Baby came from. The best example I can think of in modern times about uh, Vanilla Ice is Dane Cook. Dane Cook is not a bad comedian, but he was so huge and so ubiquitous for so long, combined with the fact that he wasn't that great, that it created this huge backlash. And that's basically Vanilla Ice, because he's a he's a real guy who has like a real affinity for hip hop. And if you listen to his album, there's some bad stuff on there, but certainly not worse than the average of like underground hip hop in like 1989. Yeah, well, I, I was going to say because I put on to the extreme for the first time in prep for this episode and like I was expecting it to be like totally laughable and it was like surprisingly like not awful at all. I, I think if it was just just some like mediocre early 90s hip hop album, like not connected to Vanilla Ice's public persona in any way, like people would just completely forget about it. it it's kind of it's kind of in the vein of like Three Feet High and Rising by De La Soul, but much more mediocre. I mean, there's some junk on there. Like there's a ballad called I Love You on that album that is <laughs> atrocious. Yep. And Vanilla Ice absolutely embraced selling out with his whole heart <laughs> because he made a terrible movie called Cool as Ice. He made a live album that uh, there's a reason there's not that many hip hop live albums. And this album was just obviously pure product. By the way, I need to say that I watched uh, Cool as Ice for the first time in preparation for this episode as well. I, I watched it with the riff tracks, which I highly recommend doing. It makes it like perfectly watchable. And it's 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 an interesting movie. It's not a good movie at all, but it's. It's interesting. Let me just say that. Uh, but I'm just but again, I'm just so torn on Vanilla Ice because. I mean, you can make fun of his flow, but again, this was recorded in 1989 and it's like, yeah, there was some really good stuff in 1989. But was this really below average? I don't think it was. But I got to say, like, for a long time, Vanilla Ice, like, kind of tried to run away from the legacy of Ice Ice Baby. Like, there was a notorious thing where he appeared on some kind of, like, I think it was an MTV special where they destroyed, like, a copy of it. And, like, but nowadays, it's like, he appears at things like the Gathering of the Juggalos and performs <laughs> Ice Ice Baby for an audience that seems to legitimately appreciate it. And you know what? Good for him. It's not a bad song. It's really not. It's just people hate it for what it represents more than for what it is, because it's fine. But uh, Mike, what do you think of it? Ah, uh, I mean, yeah, I, I kind of agree with you. It's it's not a, a terrible song by any means. It's not particularly great. Uh, 
I don't really have much use for it. <laughs> uh, but I'm I'm not just gonna. Like Paul's Boutique was out the same year. If you're gonna talk about like white rappers and like or like sure. the Cactus album by Third Base, and it's like yeah, this is obviously album. so much better. But yeah, it's just you know Vanilla Ice is such an easy target that it's just you know it's no fun. Yeah, you know, it's 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 very easy to make fun of Vanilla Ice and just you know. He's I, he's I can't I'm I'm not I'm not mad at the guy's existence or anything. It's just I I just don't really but care. It's, it's like I don't know. Is is Vanilla Ice a worse rapper than Chingy? I would say no. <laughs> and he made for really good third act entertainment in Secret of the Ooze, I have to say. And I mean <laughs> he got offered dump trucks full of money to appear in like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movies. And you know what? I don't blame him for taking it. Yo! It's the green machine, gonna rock the town without being seen. Have you ever seen a turtle get down? Slamming and jamming to the new swing sound. Yeah, everybody let's move. Vanilla is filled with a new jack groove. Gonna rock and roll the place with the power of the ninja turtle face. Iceman, you know I'm not playing. There is a, a clip I want to play of a, a cover of this song. It was done in 2010 by the French synth punk band Chavu. an episode with me on it if there weren't a, a zany clip of something <laughs> that's a transformative cover right there yeah <laughs> so yeah it's it it deserves to exist just for that okay well i think that brings us to the end of that poke medley and the end of this series for now thanks for joining me for that one guys that was a lot of fun absolutely yeah i knew you guys had to be on the vanilla ice one <laughs> i'll talk about vanilla ice all day <laughs> <laughs> Stay tuned for our recording of his like double disc epic bipolar. OK, so next comp or rather we're going back to an old comp. So it is time to go back to the second disc of Mike's excellent compilation in defense of prog rock. We're going to disc two, which has a bunch of bands you have never heard of. And they are awesome. This is where I put all the weird stuff <laughs> as if the, stuff on the first disc wasn't weird. But this is weirder. Yeah. <laughs> OK, roll credits. What do you call this record with all these songs? This is comp, yeah, yeah. This is comp, yeah, yeah. This is comp, yeah, yeah. This is. Thank you for listening to This Is Comp, a subsidiary of the Discord and Rhyme podcast. You can hear back episodes of this series and our regular album-focused episodes at discordpod.com. And you can also subscribe to Discord and Rhyme on your podcast app of choice. 
This closing theme is performed by Kenneth Crayley and is based on the song This Is Pop by XTC, originally written by Andy Partridge. You can find Kenneth's music at bandcamp.com. Editing and production is by me, Rich Bennell. We'll be back with our next comp in about a month, and in the meantime, keep as cool as you can. Go Ninja, go Ninja, go! Go!